How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 223. I have a little bit of a, a deeper voice, Zeke. Yeah. Is this is that time of year. It is that where, time of year. Where uh, yes. you have that voice that uh, you think's more attractive. I, 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 don't, I don't think it. <laughs> Just all the, all the girls think it. <laughs> I didn't say it, Zeke. Just all the... <laughs> All the women unanimously the, agree the sick, on that. The sick boy Jake. The sick boy Jake. <laughs> They're like, Jake, can I call you? I'm like, no, I'm sick. No, I just want to hear your voice. <laughs> so other than being sick, Jake, oh, you sound pretty good. Pretty lighthearted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not I'm not in a deep, uh, deep depressed mind state that some characters in the film of the week might have been at, at some points. Absolutely. In the film. That was a terrible segue, but I tried Zeke. Yes. I tried. I'm sick, so give me a pass. I get a pass for that. You are talking about Amadeus. I am. Jake, do you have any cool, interesting trivia from the film? I of do, the week? actually. I'm glad you are sick, because mm. I wouldn't have mentioned it if you didn't. There are only four sets built for this film, despite it being a big three hour grand scale period piece, you know, from the 17, 1800s. Those four sets include a staircase. <laughs> uh, Mozart's apartment, Salieri's like hospital, hospital room. I get yeah, I guess yeah, hospital. Mm-hmm. It's an accurate term to call it a hospital. And the, the oh my god, I'm forgetting the pronunciation of the theater. It's one of the main theaters in the film. I'm gonna get the pronunciation right here, Zeke. Vaudeville for V, the Vaudeville theater mm. in one of the four sets. Which yeah, I mean, I was thinking that watching it, I was like, how many sets? Well, not even just sets. How many locations are there throughout the film? Because, yeah, we spend a considerable amount of time in the same rooms, mm. despite it being, like, these wonderful grand-scale, uh, like, locations and sets. And there's not a so lot the of palace? exteriors. What does the pal- palace sit into? Or are these, like, are you saying built sets? Yes. Everything else, apparently, was found locally in Prague. I could believe that. that just is cra- I guess, yeah, a lot of it would be have been... You know, upkept, so to speak. Yeah. The architecture is not lost, I suppose, over the last no. few hundred years. So, makes a lot of sense. But that, that kind of blew me away. Because four sets on a film of this scale is pretty impressive. Yep. What about you, Z? What's your, what's your fun fact? Well, obviously, like you said, there's a great emphasis on authenticity in this film, despite being a, well, a fictional um, mm-hmm. tale. Um, but a great emphasis was on lighting, which we don't always talk about, but... This film features no artificial lighting in it, in the sense that all of the lighting was from the light sources that you either see in or around the frame, but all natural, so candlelit oh, wow. and stuff. No lighting bulbs, no big 120Ds. <laughs> um, it's pure authentic, which, look, as, you know, I'm a big, great admirer of that, I imagine that would have been significantly difficult for mm. the gaffer to work their head around, and a lot of really long candlesticks. That is true. That is the whole <laughs> use of candles in the film. Yes. Yeah, very well. It would have been a very hot set, I imagine, then. No. Ah, the the yeah. heat admitted off the... Off all the lights and everything. Yeah. <laughs> it is a very, very authentic film, just in terms of its presentation and, like you said, the authenticity of the sets and the lighting and everything. It's, it's really beautiful. Yes. And I can't wait to talk more about it before Zeke. Mm-hmm. Is this film on the poster behind you? Eleven hundred films you must watch. You'd be very surprised if it wasn't. It is indeed on there. Yeah. <laughs> Along with Twilight, which we talked about a couple. Of weeks yeah, ago. well, this was the <laughs> the great debate, wasn't it? it um, was, yeah. 
But yeah, no, and and has every place to be there. Yeah, I mean, it's widely regarded as one of the, the greatest films of all time, and I think that is a very worthwhile argument to be had. It's going to be a fascinating talk about it in the second half of the show. Before we get there, Jake, what have you watched in the last week? So I watched one film. Okay. It's called Bo is Afraid. Yes. Now, it's a new Ari Aster film. It's uh... <laughs> wild. <laughs> that was the same laugh had by Ari Aster when he realized, oh my God, I get to make this movie. And all the executive producers laughing, realizing... I'm going to be broke this Christmas <laughs> because this is one of the most absolutely wild films I've ever seen in my life. Um, it's probably his most artistic film. He's most challenging easily. You look at films like Hereditary and Midsommar. It's like they're, they're challenging in many ways in terms of like the visuals. Obviously they're, they're but horror like films. Narr- narrative understanding. Is this the toughest to follow? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. In, in the sense that it kind of abandons what those films does in terms of it freaks you out with its visuals. You know, you've got heads being chopped off or people jumping off cliffs and all these horrible visual elements. And this film kind of goes in the other direction where there's there's some horrible elements to it, but a lot of them are off screen. I was shocked by that. It's not a very gory film, but you're right. In terms of narrative, there's a lot to dissect. <laughs> it's incredibly vague. Almost everyone at the screening that I went to, and it was one of those lunar. It was like a Jojo Rabbit Zeke. So like mm. I recognized a good chunk of people at this screening. Like, oh, hey, Joe, hey, Jesse, how's it going? Um, so it was a lot of film nerds on opening night to see this mm-hmm. film, and the vast majority of them were like, "What on earth did I just watch?" <laughs> the the lamb feeling. In a little sense, yeah, it's even more vague than Lamb because at least Lamb is like an hour forty, yeah. and like there's definitely things you can interpret from. I'm not saying that Bo is afraid is uninterpretable. I actually walked away with a pretty concrete idea of what I think the story is about, what the themes are about, and I won't, I can't go into it too much because it is pretty spoiler. Like, there's actually not a lot I can even talk about with this film without feeling like I'm spoiling the adventure because the whole mm. the whole thing is it's a three hour epic. It's an odyssey of this journey that Walking Phoenix goes on, you know, trying to get to his mother's house. And like that, like that being this sort of ironic pitch to you of like, that's, that sounds funny. Like, Oh wow. It's a three hour epic Lord of the Rings esque journey. He's getting to his mom's house. And like, they play with that in the beat for beat comedy as well, where there's all these wacky, crazy things happening. You kind of just have to laugh because there's almost no other reaction you can have to those moments. Um, so in terms of it being like an art film, I absolutely applaud it. I am so glad that films like this still exist in the age of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. <laughs> Maybe that's Ari Aster's next film is an Ant-Man I film reckon to, so. to counter this. Uh... <laughs> well, apparently it's, I was going to say, will be a box office bomb. It's actually doing pretty well relative to the number of theaters that A24 have released mm. it in. It's actually doing pretty well. So it might make its 30 million back. You never know. Yeah, you hope it does. Yeah. Because, like I said, you want these films to be made. You want the films, you know, you know, the last Joaquin Phoenix uh, film we were talking about on the show is Come On, Come On, and mm. that's a soft, very slow, moves-at-its-own-pace kind of film. And yep. um, For some people, that now, with the attention span getting less and less and less, it's, it's hard to sell those kinds of film ideas. Yeah. Um, especially from A24, you know, like a couple of weeks on the show, we're talking about bodies, bodies, bodies. 
And that almost feels like the direction that A24 sometimes feels like they're going to go right. with those more sort of interesting premise show uh, films, yeah. but they're a little bit more uh, like quick paced and um, less kooky and wild. Mm. Well, just yeah. having trust in its audience, because like, this is the kind of film that, I mean, I was thinking of Annette. And it's like, that that was the film I was closest to just walking out of. And I literally couldn't because we were there. We were about to do a podcast on it. So I was like, probably shouldn't walk out of the movie if I'm going to talk about it. But uh, not that I was thinking of. I actually, I thought Bo is Afraid is, is fantastic. I gave it four stars on Letterboxd. And if you want to hear my my interpretation of the film and the story and the themes, go to the Letterboxd review. I just wrote a full-on spoiler review for yeah. it. Um, so if you want that, go check it out. But At Jake the Clicker. At Jake the Clicker, exactly. But... This is the kind of film people just walk out of and are like, I've never seen another Ari Aster film ever again. But I like the divisiveness. I like the boldness of the film. Um, I kind of want to see it again, even though I think a good majority of people are like, I'm never watching that again. Yeah, it was... Yeah. It was. Uh, th- these are the kinds of films... Uh, I, I will compare it to, like, Synecdoche, New York, to a lesser extent, The Truman Show. It's kind of got those elements I get you. interwoven into the story. Not not as clear. Like the Truman Show is very clear, clear. what is what's happening in the world. Um, and if someone says that my reading on the film is completely incorrect and I didn't understand it, then that Truman Show reference makes no I mean, sense it's very, whatsoever. It's very. Some so. people find even everything everywhere all at once very tough to follow. And sure, from its when how big it gets in scope, and you're talking about Odysseys, that film's an Odyssey in its own right. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's probably got a little bit of an easier family narrative, kind of tying it together. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think there's a more clear through, like, especially with the last act of everything everywhere. It is, it is a little yeah. spelt out what the whole idea yeah. is, but um, this one doesn't do that. In fact, its ending is this kind of a complete downer. It doesn't give you any clarity whatsoever on <laughs> what the, what, a, what on earth was going on. What was on. he afraid of? Well, apparently everything. <laughs> Both afraid of everything, but... Again, for fear of spoiling it, I don't want to. I don't want to talk too much about it. The only thing I will say that I didn't write in my review is also kind of a spoiler, so I'll be incredibly vague. But uh, one of our friends, Peter, who I bumped into at the screen, he actually he lent some gear for Skin and Blister. So thank you to Peter. But he suggested that the film should have ended a little earlier. I'll just say post orgasm. That's all I'll say. And I kind of see where he's coming at with the film ending at that point. It, it would have made a lot of sense and it would have brought the, the, the running time down from three hours to probably two and a half, which, uh, I don't know. If you want to appease to the audience, that would help, but I don't think Arias is trying to appease to any audience with this film, so I don't think that was going to happen. Zeke, what have you been watching in the last week? A pretty good week. Um, four films outside of the film of the week. Oh, very nice. So five in total, but... Um, look, we'll start with the ones that I don't really have too much to add to. Um, I watched the latest from Julia Roberts and George Clooney, Ticket to Paradise, which is that sort of easygoing, (laughs) bit of a nothing, uh, rom-com. What can I say about it? It was a weak premise. It's about their, their, their uh, daughter's getting married. Yeah. And they're, they're a divorced couple and they're spontaneously thrust into going to Bali. Hmm. Um, as their daughter, who's bound for law school, um, meets someone over there in the summer vacation after graduating university, falls in love and spontaneously jumps marriage on them. Mm. And, you'll, and you want to sit there, first premise, you go, well, they've just spent $200,000 for her to throw that away on a, <laughs> on a law degree, <laughs> but sure. 
Let me have my she sister. Can't, she can't she's... get married and still continue to do law? Did I, did I just spoil the ending? I don't know. <laughs> no, she completely abandons it altogether. Not to, and I have oh, no problem okay. spoiling So that's film. part of the story. They don't, no, they don't even address it. They don't even address the fact oh. that she's went to... And this is my problem. I, I think it was just a very... felt like kind of a popcorn script that was maybe bought a while back. And they thought, ah, oh, look, we need a, a four quadrant that we can put in there and yeah. um, get people to watch George Clooney and Julie Roberts. Oh, they've... Ocean's, Ocean's Eleven, you know, we can put them together. Sounds like the exact opposite um, of the film I just watched. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and it's sort of, yeah. The big thing is for me, it's like, okay, so it's a rom-com, so we want it to be funny. It's not funny. We want it to have some clarity and some heartwarming. Yeah, I guess there's a cultural exploration. It's the nicest depiction of Bali I've ever seen. <laughs> not in, not to, not to th- throw Indonesia under the bus, but obviously we as West Australians in particular have a very acute relationship with, you know, Bali, and that's mostly to get absolutely hammered and do stupid things, and we're a plague upon that society over there. <laughs> Whereas this was, like, beautiful and serene, and, like, they're a seaweed farming community, and you're like... Yeah. It's very interesting, but... It, um, it feels like the whole, like, Adam Sandler just goes on vacations for his films, and then, for some reason, Bali's, like, the really cheap vacation this time. Yeah, it did feel a bit <laughs> like that. Okay, um, fair enough. Moving through, um, latest film from, um, sorry, this one's, uh, it's actually a director debut for John Patton Ford, Emily the Criminal, which is um, oh, currently yeah. on Binge. It's got a pretty warm reception. Um, Aubrey Plaza, obviously, is a quite a fun, entertaining actress to, to watch. She sort of just does whatever she wants, really. There's not really a through line in kind of defining her as... But this is this is interesting, tying into the, the previous film for a weird thread, but sure is Emily uh, has massive amounts of student loan debt ah, following her university time and because she suffers a assault char- assault conviction while she was in university, uh, she's unable to get work to sort of pay that loan back, thus turning to credit card, credit card fraud. Um, mm, okay. It's an interesting sort of... It, it does feel a little sort of Safdie-esque in its... Um, way it goes about it. Like I said, Aubrey Plaza is the biggest name in this film. There's not really any other big names. Sure. Very, very low-budget indie. Um, and its feeling does, like, you wouldn't put it out out of profile with, like, a Safdie Brothers Good Time or um, Uncut Gems because it's about this person that sort of gets sucked into the criminal world. Um, but it's quite brutal. Like, there are times where she's very much a very real person that's dealing with the ramifications and the fact that there's a criminal food chain and, mm. you know, she befriends this, um, I, sorry, I'm forgetting his, um, race. What is he again? I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but he but obviously no. has a <laughs> you know, Armenian, I think, but I might be getting that wrong either. Armenian or Iranian, um, guy who's obviously doing the same. It's sort of that American dream trying to become, you know, they weren't given opportunities, so they turned to crime, and then yep. they sort of justify it that way. And um, they don't really touch on the the other side of um, how this affects the people they've ripped, essentially, cre- you know, impersonated right, okay. like and credit cards. The victims. Yep. It's very much focused on this very small portion or perspective of the story where it's about that it feels like it's a never-ending um, way of recovery. And, and you can feel like that even now. I mean... You, you've been very good. You've paid your hex debt all off. Mm. Um, you put the time in and stuff. But a lot of us 
aren't in the same position. Yeah. And it's, it's frustrating because, you know, you work five and a half years. I said this to someone even today. Yeah. Um, it's like you study for f- three years, four years, five and a half years. You know, I've done an undergrad and a postgrad and now have got a full-time job and that's great. But now there's the $35,000 of debt you've got to pay off. And yeah. then as soon as you get out of that one, it's, oh, I've got to pay a house off. And, you know, it's... Yeah. So you, one can only imagine if, you know, you've had a couple of misdemeanors and you can't get those opportunities, you know. Um, it's a yeah, very well, fine line. It definitely sounds like a commentary on just, especially American hex. Yes. Or Which is even worse. There, but it's, it's immensely worse than what we have here in Australia. And, like, we're lucky to at least have you know, Centrelink and other outlets to, to help pay in the yes. moment. But, and I mean, like you said, like with us being in our mid-20s and sort of at that stage in our lives where we're, you know, we're, we're pretty far removed now away from school and study and well into jobs and, you know, with partners and wanting to move out and all of that. So, yeah, it's it's extre- extremely daunting just the amount of money that is either owed um, and or that you need to spend to make these things happen. But... With so with the with Emily, I'm guessing that's the name of the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Is is it sort of like a journey where her character's like on this downward spiral because of the situation she's put yeah, in? Yeah, and she gets herself more and more into escalating yeah. um, trouble, and obviously, what starts off as just simple credit card um, fraud escalates. Right. Um, the ending's really good; has a nice, neat ending, a nice little callback ending. It's honestly a really fun, easy ninety-minute watch. Mm-hmm. Um, cool has a one scene in it that's where she's in the latter stages of the film and she's interviewing because her friend who works in a design firm has got her an opportunity and um, she's having this commentary with, with the boss there who's expecting her to be an unpaid intern for like six, seven months and she just fobs it oh off. Boy. I know that circulated a lot around social media, but it's actually a really good monologue about how sort of this like, oh, pay you dues society, but how many dues do we have to pay before... Like, you know, if you've done the degree and you've got $70,000, why do you then have to go into an unpaid internship? Yeah. And it is quite difficult and quite frustrating. I think it's disgusting how how many um, uh, pracs are out there, like unpaid pracs. I think yeah. that's, that's ludicrous. Well, obviously, yeah, coming from a teaching background, it is quite difficult to, you know, and having two, in my two years, it was two 10-week pracs. And I was lucky enough that I had a job that didn't let me go. Mm-hmm. And was happy to welcome me back, but I know that's not the case in every job, or or some jobs are very disgruntled about taking, letting you take that sort of time off, or they just find other people to fill the hole, and then it's very hard to get back to the same hours that you were working when you left. Yeah. Um, and then you're unemployed basically for those ten weeks while working your butt off. Well, that's <laughs> that's it. It's like how on earth, like what? It just feels so lazy. The system behind, it. like how on earth do you expect someone to just take ten weeks off? For I like I understand the idea of full time study, but it's like there are other avenues around full time study. We can still work, yeah. and prac you cannot work. <laughs> and there's that big thing where it's like so you know if we're not to get too tangent, but it's like at the time you know you're on youth allowance, so you get six hundred and twenty dollars a fortnight. You know, and in our current rental market, that's just not viable. I mean, I'm in a lucky situation where that would only be about half of my. Um, right allowance would go to my rent because I'm not in a, a very expensive rental property. But, you know, if I was living alone, like that's that's yeah. all your money just disappears exactly. on the rent. I mean, um, I know many people who that would not cover their rent. Not yeah. even, like maybe half of their rent for the week. 
That's ridiculous. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's like it's Centrelink's responsibility to cover all of your expenses because that is done under the ex- ex- expectation that you're able to study and still work around that schedule. Yeah. But PRAC is a different story. Anyway, That I never had to do a PRAC, for example, so I'm, I'm complaining on behalf of other people. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just but, saying from the outside, it looks right. ridiculous. It's that pay-you-use mentality, and, and I think the film really nails that aspect. I think there's the, the fact that I was left being like, that was good, but I wanted to see more, I think it's a good right. sign. I mean, this is a first-time director on his his first outing. You know, He's only got a short film to his name from eight or nine years prior, so clearly this was in the works and development. And he really took the time to develop this script and was probably doing work on other people's films in the, in the interim. But yeah, it was a good film. It was a good, like, you got something to watch. Sounds like a conversation starter. Absolutely. <laughs> um, in addition, I watched uh, two other films. So I watched a documentary. I won't go too much on it because I have done a lot of different sort of um, free climbing and um, rock climbing sort of documentaries. Um, okay. I watched The, the Alpinist. Um, which follows a very young free solo climber called Mark Andre Leclerc. And he was sort of interesting because in previous ones I've talked about on this show, The Dawn Wall, I think I did free solo. They're exceptional um, cinematography. Mm. You know, obviously they're, they're capturing these people doing the free climbing and stuff. What was interesting and what elevated this film for me because going in, I'm like, well, those were exceptional, but the Dawn Wall and, and Free Solo both came out in like 2015, so we need the next step. So what's the next step from just having exceptional mountaineering photography? Because mm. we clearly have the re- the resources and the technology to capture this stuff now, and especially what I liked about this documentary, obviously it's from um, Nick Rosson and Peter Mortimer, who are actually known for making these alpine documentaries. Okay. They, they are the That's ones who bang. did the Dawn Wall... They've done a bunch, like a bunch of them I've never even heard of before. So they're coming into this one, I'm going, okay, well, I want to see something different because you guys are clearly very proficient in this this art form. Um, but what's interesting about The Alpinist is it follows this, this very young man. He's 23 years old, and he's setting all of these exceptional free climbing records, but there's no publication. He's not in Red, like Red Bull magazine or doing mm. like promos because there was this interesting commentary and it's narrated by Peter Mortimer where he talks about how because of these documentaries and this exposure rock climbers have become more like celebrities it's the same sort of thing as like F1 drivers like they're an athlete yeah. now obviously rock climbing is now in the Olympics it wasn't in the Olympics before oh. um, same with skateboarding yeah so yeah. we're seeing these things where it's like they're starting to become like caricatures and there's this kid who's from like this very small town in British Columbia lives in Squamish, which I've been to Squamish, so oh, that's cool. Very nice. Um, which is a very little town, and it's just a bunch of um, hippies sitting around climbing, basically. Um, and <laughs> I just had an image in my head of that. It's. That's I mean, good. I was there in winter. Like, you just fed the AI a GPT chat, like the algorithm. Yeah. Of, it's just a small town, people climbing, and then I just like interpreted it in my head. Yeah, and I was like, um, that's funny. <laughs> And there's this kid who's doing all of these records and stuff, and they ask him to come on camera, and he does, like, a little interview, but he's, like, awkward, and he's not, like... He's not, like, trained or anything. Mm. Like, he's not, like... Or he's not turning into these... He's just, like, yeah, I just really like climbing and stuff. And to the point where he was supposed to do these other sort of climbs, they were supposed to follow him doing these climbs, and he just ditched them. He just ghosts them. Like, he's ignoring the... Like, he doesn't even... 
the documentary crew don't know where he goes for like three, four months. He just disappears. Yeah. They can't find him. And then they find on his socials, he'll put like a photo up of being on top of a thing or his girlfriend will be like, oh, he's over here now and over here. And obviously they're getting like a little annoyed, but at the same time, I think what is happening, which is great about this documentary, is it outlining the ethos that some people just climb for them. Right. And it's not about the show. They don't want the recognition or acclaim. Like, he beats this climbing record and goes, oh, yeah, that was cool. And then the guy who beat it, like, the the, the other guy who the had previous before, record had, who is, like, a speed climber, right. comes back and smashes the record. But it, it doesn't revolve in this back and forth. He just goes, okay, that's cool. Like, it, it was a yeah. difference. And I, different attitude. I compare it to Searching for Sugar Man, where they're looking for this, this South African phenomenon whose songs carried through the apartheid and he's just a regular joe who lives in detroit and mm. you finally meet rodriguez and he's like oh that's really cool that people like my music and that was it like it was one of those things <laughs> but, and it's kid you can't help but like him because he, he genuinely is just like i climb for me and to the point where he says i don't want people when i do these like roots for the first time i don't want a camera crew with me because i'm not really alone at that right. point and then then becomes that theology of, well, I guess that's right. You know, I've watched about three or four of these documentaries and they're talking about these solo climbs, but the camera's sticking right in their face while they're doing it. Which means someone's there watching, like, yeah. ad sale down the mountain to film it, which is crazy. Did this documentary, like, intentionally... I, I guess so, because it's all in the cut. Him well, it's about organically this. grown right. this way. I think that originally that was going to be just another... Like, Just look at this star, let's doco. put this star on Because that was the thing, a lot of these documentaries gave, gave these guys exposure and made them more popular. Mm. Um, and I thought this was going to be another one of those, whereas the, yeah, it was that theology. And of course, you know, it takes a really tragic turn um, in the, the last bit because this is an incredibly dangerous uh, passion. And, you know, it, it does end with, him going on some climb in Alaska and he, and dies in an avalanche yeah, and geez. which is tragic and that's like they say I mean it's insane what they're doing like a lot of the time sometimes they're climbing with like belays but sometimes they're just and this guy's doing ice wall climbing so when like the waterfalls freeze he's climbing the waterfalls right yeah and it's it's scary. It's well, it sounds, it sounds similar a bit to Fire of Love in that sense of like embracing the danger and like if they die doing what they loved, so it's okay in that sense. But yes, but in terms of you watching this and comparing it to their other films and like what what's the hook of this one? What what makes this different? It sounds like that's what's it because it just deconstructed the entire like reflective documentary mode. Yep. Well, not reflective documentary, the anti-reflective documentary mode where you're being you're watching a documentary and you're engrossed in the content. And you're forgetting that there's a big camera crew there, not necessarily orchestrating it, but capturing it yeah. and being present and, and affecting the moment some way, shape or form, even if it's just psychologically or the people talking in front of the camera. It's like, well, they know they're talking to what could potentially be millions of people on the other end of the theater or, or computer screen. So there's that inherent, uh, not truth, but you know what I mean? Like it's deconstructing the illusion of what these documentaries usually are doing. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting because it's like the Dawn War, which I do really like the Dawn War. I spoke very fondly of it at the time because that was probably the first one I ever watched. And the premise there was really good because, you know, you have this climber who's lost part of their finger, which is a massive part yeah, well. of climbing, and they've had to climb it with a stump. And you're, like, blown away by that aspect. And, you know, that's an incredible documentary. But, obviously, the piece to camera has happened after the climb was successful. Right. 
you know, and most of them, you know, either are directed to act like they're talking in the moment. Yeah. Or, you know, this, that and the other. But this kid just doesn't care, like, in that way. Like, not in an arrogant way, just in a, I just don't really see the the point. I don't yeah. think I'm that interesting to look at. And then I think that's genuinely authentic. Um, the fact that he's willing to be, yeah, and call out that sort of, like I said, anti-reflective style, being like, well, there's a camera right in my face, so I'm not mm. really climbing by myself. Yeah. Um, the reason he's going and doing all these routes by himself is not for affirmation. It was just because he wanted to do it. Yeah. It helped rationalize the world around him. Um, Beautiful. That was really good. Um, the last film was, and I do like me a good sort of stage to screen um, Ooh, vibe. Okay. Um, this was from Mark Rylance, or starring Mark Rylance, which was The Outfit, which came oh. out, I believe, last year, if I'm not mistaken. It's definitely um, a more recent film from memory. Yeah, 2022. Um, starring, obviously, like I just said, Mark Rylance, uh, Zoe Deutsch, and uh, Johnny Flynn from Maze Runner, acclaim. Um, so I haven't seen it. It's good. I mean, it's a fun film. It's about this... Um, he's not a tailor. He's a cutter, as we find <laughs> out. He's obviously <laughs> someone in charge with making um, suits in sort of the mid... Uh, the mid-50s, in the middle of a, a gangster New York, and... Um, it takes place solely inside his cutter's shop, you know, like his, okay, cool. you know, with, um, the three or four different rooms of this shop. And, um, it very much is, like I said, it's a stage play script that has been adapted to a screen, very much a Ma Rainey's Black Bottom situation where we've got 99% of the film inside one location and characters go on massive monologues and we explore characters' psyches and, um... It was very entertaining. It's kind of a very subdued Mark Rylance role. Um, definitely not as creepy as the bones and all. <laughs> Mark Rylance. Um, sort of more akin to his Chicago 7, but, you know, we we're obviously big fans of him on the show for the last couple of years. And, yeah. Um, always well, he, like, well, his performance in Chicago, the trial of Chicago 7, is it's a bit more... F- it's not like he's an inherently flashy character, but the dialogue itself is quite flashy and is delivered in it mm. with a certain rhythmic energy. So, so in terms of him playing a subdued role, this does sound very different from what he usually does. Yeah, yeah, and it is quite a clever little script. Um, you know, I compare it to something. I do like my the Twelve Angry Men sort of stage play okay. adaptations and all the death traps of the world. I, I think they're one room or one location. Films are quite interesting, but obviously are heavily reliant on dialogue, purpose, and movement, and mm. it all works really well. Um, it's a once again, it's kind of one of those films that hey, you got nothing to watch, jump on a Netflix, click on the outfit, we'll give it a watch. It's fun. Um, I don't think you're going to find uh, a greater meaning of life or anything grandiose. It's just a really engaging and fun narrative. That would be an interesting stage play to watch, which is kind of what you want out of a film like that, I think. Yeah, I suppose, in terms of it being the translation, which is ironic because Amadeus is also a translation from a stage play, which is crazy to think about because of its scale. But then again, only four sets built, so... There we go. That's all I've watched in the last week. It's kind of nice to have a content-heavy week. It's probably one of the highlights of my holiday. Yeah, well, out of the ones you just mentioned, Emily the Criminal sounds probably the most interesting, I would say. Just because of the conversation it sparks about, you know, school debt and, and the like. 
Yeah, I think it's a good. It's sort of like it's kind of like a film like when you stumble across like Bad Education when they have that investigation film with Hugh Jackman that I'd never heard about. Looked on binge one day. It was there. You watch it and you're like, oh, it was a really cool film. Yeah, takes yeah. you by surprise. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So, I guess, uh, do you have anything you want to add in career updates, Jake? Um, uh, not too much. We had a rap party this past weekend, yep. which was, I think was very successful. Quite yeah. fun. I felt really bad. <laughs> not coming. Ah, oh, it's all right, mate. Um, oh, you, had, you had Cat Empire. I went to Cat Empire in a way to sort of save my holidays after missing out on Jackson Brown twice. Oh, gosh. Shout out to Jackson Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I know you listen to the show. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. No, congratulations. Obviously, firmly into post-production now. That's it. I'm just cooking along. Excellent. Just chugging along. We like that. Yeah. So, I guess it's time for us to move in our film of the week. It's the latest installment in our countdown through the decades, number four. It's 1980s. Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Amadeus. How well are you trained in music? I know a little. I studied it in my youth. Where? Here in Vienna. Ah, then you must know this. I can't say that I do. What is it? It was a very popular tune in its day. I wrote it. Here. How about this? This one brought down the house when we played it first. famous composer in Europe. I wrote 40 operas alone. Yeah. What about this one? Yes, I know that. Oh, that's charming. I'm sorry, I didn't know you wrote that. I didn't. That was Mozart. The incredible story of genius musician Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, told in flashback by his peer and secret rival Antonio Salieri, now confined to an insane asylum. I I wish you'd said something along the lines of, like, genius Genius musical compositionist Mozart and and noted musician Salieri. 
Much like the laugh at the end of this film. There you go, yeah. Well, very or the very high-pitched, annoying one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, one of the most iconic laughs in cinema, Zeke. Yeah, between that and <laughs> Mickey Mouse, which is more annoying. <laughs> oh! Uh, who could do their best uh, yeah, Mozart laugh? And I've got, I've got a block I nose. I out the mic. I've got a block nose at the moment, so... It's like back here, it's like... <laughs> that's pretty good, actually. Thank you. Oh, that was really that's, good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's not bad. We both had to lean back for that. Yeah. <laughs> Look really at that. Good. It's, it's all in the chest. It's, speaking, yeah. it's all in the chest. It's very similar to a Joker laugh. Yeah. Should he have played the Joker? So that's going to be the first thing that I was going to touch on is, boy, what a crazy film to have a bunch of people that kind of didn't really do too much after this film. Like, well, yeah, I was going to... Well, you know what's funny? You mentioned that F. Murray Abraham... Abraham. He just had some allegations thrown his way in the last week. Really? Because he's in... What's that show? He's doing a show right now. Mythic Quest. Mythic... Is that it? Okay. Yeah. Oh, boy. Which I did talk about on the show, oh, I want to say two, three months ago. It's yeah. on Apple TV. It's had two seasons. It's about a bunch of people running a, on like a World of Warcraft-esque online multiplayer. Oh, Obviously, okay. um, Stars and is executively produced by Rob McElwenny from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Right. And I guess welcome to Wrexham, Fane, now that Wrexham's been promoted out of the National League in the last week. But yeah, he's on that show. And there you go. Arguably, I mean, his character's very much like Chevy Chase was in um, Community, sort of the out-of-touch old man character that mm. sort of has that... He's probably way more likable than Chevy Chase's sort of Pierce in Community, and I would argue that there's an, the episode where it's like his origin story is probably the best episode of that show. It's a really good episode okay. about how he sort of falls in love with video game storytelling. Interesting, but allegations. You were yeah, saying. no, I just say literally like last week we did our podcast, we announced next week Amadeus, and then like that night I scroll past and there's all these allegations, and he's not returning for another season, and that might be the reason why, and. Whole thing, which I didn't look into too much. It's like that's such unfortunate timing, but <laughs> yeah. so just like what, like sexual harassment stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I didn't read too much into it. Well, but... that would explain why we didn't see a lot of him. Um, <laughs> but even like Thomas Hulse, I would say, um, can't say I've, I've hmm. Hulse. Um, he's known for his uh, Quasimodo in the. 99 film The Huntrack of Notre Dame which oh, okay. does have immaculate um, music in that film mm. it's probably it's strongest point but like Stranger Than Fiction and then oh, a bunch yeah, of films oh yeah he's in Stranger Than Fictions yeah like, Parenthood Fearless Mary Shelley's Frankenstein I think that's a like a mini series Animal House but that's before this yeah so. but to, to your point and I actually do recall reading about this um that or at least one of the reviews was talking about like the casting was just like like really bold like really bold casting choices all around and I think going through the trivia I noticed a lot of people were sort of replaced at the last minute I don't remember uh, Constance I remember someone was meant to play her and then she she had an illness or something the day the first day of filming until Elizabeth uh, Berridge replaced her on the spot something so, a lot of stories like that I recall reading but. You know, it goes back to the cast. And I, I don't want to start gushing about this film too quickly because this is the first time you've seen it. I yeah. want to hear your thoughts on this film that... Uh, I think it's a pretty awesome film. But yeah. <laughs> I, hate, I hate to... Yeah, you've probably seen my letterbox score. I have seen your letterbox um, score. Sorry to... 
spoil it. So yeah, no, it's but am I really that surprised though? Nah, by your you shouldn't score. be. I mean, if you know me, which I don't think anyone knows my film taste better than you do. Sure. Um, at this point, it's like a marriage that is <laughs> at this point. <laughs> um, and uh, I think going into this film, I remember watching the first. I think just the opening sequence and mm. went ah. Yeah, I'm going to love this film. Like, <laughs> it's almost like the moment when you see The Last Waltz and the first thing Scorsese puts up is this film is meant to be played loud. Mm. Um, at least that's what it is on the DVD. Um, and this almost has the same effect. I went from, I think I had it on my TVs normally on 30 and I pushed it right up to like 90. I yeah. was like, oh, I want to get engulfed in this film. <laughs> um, and I think it's such a... There's so many things to like about it. You know, we're talking about things like the grand of reality, not making a lot of sets, having mm-hmm. it all just being using Prague's uh, seemingly uh, ageless state um, in the film. And then on top of that, uh, the diegetic music mixing oh into the non diegetic music mixing. Um, I remember sitting, I was about 40 minutes into the film, and I just like cursed at myself because i was like man i could have seen a live orchestra with this film <laughs> like what an experience and i've always thought oh those are God. so because you've been quite a few of them now yeah the, a few the, now i saw the, toy story pretty recently and i find it really interesting because it's like i've seen those pop up and i've been like oh i don't know if i would enjoy them as much because the, the screen's not as prominent and right it's obviously the orchestra is on to display but Man, what a way to watch this film. And I could see the things like you get to the end of the film and you want more because it was so exhausting. I think the that was the best placed or the most hankering I was for a second half of a film when the intermission hit. Right, okay. Um, which we don't talk about intermissions because obviously they're so the more ver- of a fixture. The version you watch, because there are two versions of this film, so yours had an intermission in it. Yeah, it's a DVD. So yeah. it had a two-sided oh, DVD. Interesting. Um, which I think's in, you know, we always talk about the, the media in which we consume the film on is actually important because, yeah. you know, back in the day, once upon a time, this would have first been in the cinemas yeah. and it would have probably had an intermission, um, in the eighties. Cause even then, I mean, this film at two hours 40 might've had an intermission. Maybe, maybe not. Um, it comes at the right time. Um, yeah. Well, we had an intermission during the live performance. Is it when... Um, I don't want to spoil too much of the film, but it's just after Mozart's dad passes away and he's conducting the... I think it's actually way before that. And I the think first it's, time I think we see the, the, armad, the, the Armadeus kind of figure. It's when he uh, puts the... He throws the cross into the fireplace and he sort of denounces God. That's when the... Yeah, I from memory it is. Yeah. Mine was when, yeah, when Mozart's uh, father passes away and the, it's the Roman general play that only runs for five times. And he's, he, he you know, That's Salieri gives that, that monologue of, oh, the strings of his father are still firmly yeah, around yeah. his finger. And then that's when he has his epiphany of how to finally sort of win or laugh yeah, back at he's, God. Yeah, like his final plan, so to speak. Um, and I'm I think glad, that's a I'm, great moment. Yeah, have. well, the hard cut as well on Your Father's Dead, and like this is a film up until this point, because I, I 
promised myself to watch a director's cut this time because I remember thinking it was it was almost too quick mm. the two hours and forty minutes. And I think it's definitely the free the free hours to the tip is very nicely paced. So I think it definitely improves the film from that standpoint. Um, but for a film that is so calculating and not slow, but is quite plotless for the first two hours in comparative to the last hour of the film. Mm. Um, I'm glad that it has the balls to do like a hard jump cut like that from your father's dead straight into the, the stage play. And just like the effect that it's had on Mozart and how that plays out on stage. Uh, like you said, with the monologue that, that Salieri is giving in the background. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I totally see that's a good spot to do the... Uh, yeah, because often, often... Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is when it was. Often when the intermissions occur, they occur about two-thirds into the, the production. Yeah. Um, they don't, they're don't. they not directly down the middle. They're often 60 to, you know, 60 to 55. But they, they're over halfway at that point. Normally about 60 to 66% yeah. of the way through. Um, and I think that's a really good point to have that moment. But yeah, the, the cross of the fire, I guess that also is a really good mid... I think that's a bit earlier, though. Like, he... That's like, quite earlier, yeah. Yeah, because he sort of denounces his relationship with God after the, the masquerade party, really. Mm. Um, uh, it is quite interesting that there are there are aspects that I sort of have questions, you know, like we assume that at the start of the film, Salieri's trying to take his own life. Yes. Um, so he's then obviously sent to this uh, insane asylum... Um, where he has this sort of one-on-one dialogue who basically, the vessel of the story is this interaction mm. with this uh, priest, uh, this f- um, this father at the uh, insane asylum, essentially asking, why did you do it, really? Yeah. Like, well, why have you claimed yes. you have killed Mozart? Like, why are you saying these things? Yes. That's his story. It's very much like the Rose Parallel on Titanic, where mm. a lot of the story is, is basically a flashback. Yeah. And we're getting, like we have our clear perspective, which is Salieri. It's very much Salieri's story and his perspective on the story. Um, not even, not only through just the general scripts and the, the structure of the story, but the fact that he's telling us this story mm. or this t- he's telling the priest that story. But yes. it's a, it's a structure that's really classic. And especially because, you know, it is pretty evident in the events of the scene. Like this is essentially a revenge tale against someone who, Mozart, who doesn't realize the kind of wrong that he has done, and and it's not a revenge tale on Mozart specifically. It's he's taking revenge against God because he blames God for not only giving him the gift to recognize the music, but then to give an even greater gift to Mozart and to have him recognize that. And he and he's so spiteful and angry and and upset. How could mm. you do this? Um, which is such an interesting twist on what would otherwise just be like, oh, I don't like that guy. He's better than me, so I'm going to kill him. It's that interesting twist that just makes it so much more nuanced yeah, and interesting. and it's the exploitation of art. It's how... Um, it's the fingers and pies with mm. um, greatness. You know, we've we've talked about it in, in even the way it reflects in the real world. You know, we talked about it with Amy, how people around Amy Winehouse were exploiting her gift, her innate ability to write songs and and sort of that's the the whole point of driving purpose of that documentary mm. and you know essentially we're sort of seeing something here maybe a little bit more like you said it's got definitely got that massive biblical-esque story going on where we've got this this great revenge over basically god bestowing a gift to 
this crude and juvenile <laughs> um like a kid. person yeah he's yeah. like a kid and he's you know he's he's grotesque and he's common and he kind of count he is basically the the counter to everything culturally appropriate in this victorian era mm. um but then also how people sponge off the greatness and and they live in that monarchical structure where um you know there's this king of austria who is musically inclined and and sort of enjoys musical but is obviously not very talented is mm. you know Salieri says he's tone deaf and and such and that's still one of the funniest sequences when he writes that <laughs> introduction to the court and <laughs> it's so awkwardly played he's yeah he's trying to keep up with it <laughs> wants to impress Mozart yeah yeah well it's uh, that that musical intrigue is sort of why Mozart always has like one foot you know in that courtroom essentially uh this is someone who's very talented and not everyone understands his genius. In a lot of ways, he is ahead of his time and that people don't understand the fascination or even the need for, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's a duet's going to turn into a, 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 oh my God, how am I forgetting? I'm Ended sick, guys. 20 people, I think. Yeah, least. exactly. How it just grows and grows and like the artistic merit and experimentation behind an idea like that. Um, or the fact that he's making, I mean, it goes back to Bo is Afraid, we talked about earlier, just like making something that is high art that might not be understood or appreciated by the vast majority of the audience that would be there. Um, and that all goes back into the financial woes that he has throughout the film and how Salieri takes all of these things from his financial woes to his, his daddy issues, essentially, um, even manipulating his wife into undressing in front of Salieri. Like all of these moments he uses to his advantage. Mm. to strike down Mozart, for a lack of a better word. It's just a classic, horrible tale. <laughs> yes. But it's good, because it's it, at its core, it's this, like you said, it's this man on his dying, uh, you know, he's on his deathbed, and he's sort of having this, he's sort of trying to justify his actions, or maybe he shows some form of regret for his actions, but it's that relationship with God, mm. and... When he chooses to forego that, that is when the true, like you said, monstrosity of character happens. And I think it's so interesting to have this character in his opening sort of scenes. He idolizes Mozart. You know, it's one of the reasons it inspires him to become this musician. You know, he's probably eight, nine years older than Mozart and obviously becomes a musician far later on because he's from a family that doesn't really value the idea of becoming a like you know a trained dog as they would say especially mm. his father and a performing monkey that whole yeah yeah um whereas you know mozart has been facil like basically this instrument uh for his father and it's interesting that both don't necessarily have particularly uh strong relationships with their father mm. you know late father both their late fathers eventually but um, one of them is far more uh, codependent on that relationship, right? Than being Mozart, um, and we see that obviously as a result of when um, his father dies and sort of that unraveling that happens. Um, and what's interesting as well is is you've got the the tethered 
father relationships that these two characters sort of share obviously the the love for this classical music and i say, I say classical i guess in that it's very very contemporary at the time mozart mm. in fact most people didn't get it too many notes <laughs> they say zeke but it's like the, these two characters have so much in common and obviously mozart makes a lot of jokes regarding salieri you know like, oh, i'll play one of his pieces and then like plays dumb on the the piano and makes the farting noise like there's a little bit of that friendly competition there which is in real life much more what the actual situation was it was more of a friendly competition between the two of them salieri actually um i believe was a piano teacher to mozart's uh, son carl which is a very interesting fact i think the film could have even used to further mm. aid his like spiteful vengeful tale so to speak but especially when you get to the end of the film when they're actually collaborating for once. And it's the only time in the film where the, the quote diegetic unquote music that only certain characters can hear is shared amongst two characters. It's, mm. it's up until this point, it's always used to isolate a character and people have to scream or knock on the door very loudly to grab their attention, to, to be physically louder than mm. the music that's in their head that they're writing or reading on paper. Um, it's a great moment and it shows these two could be really good collaborators and friends if not for this, you know, jealousy hmm. that exists, not necessarily in Mozart, but in Salieri especially. I, I guess, but I, I think there's a there's a humblingness to Mozart too in, mm. in this film. I, I don't think to say he is this, you know, he is put on this messiah-esque uh, pedestal, but the, the, the film isn't going to, as far as to say this is an incredibly likeable or even respectable person, I think. Mm who has clear morals. I mean, it's the the fact that he openly makes fun of Salieri or he takes those jabs or he basically, in a way, and I mean, this is, at the end of the day, this is from Salieri's perspective, this sure. story is being told. So we don't actually know how crude Mozart was. Yeah. Is this just the depiction of how Salieri saw him um, or how the world around him saw him? Yep. Is this an authentic depiction of that kind of Mozart? He might have been... A little bit more cheeky and less, but I feel like it's a pretty honest telling of the story because mm. Salieri doesn't ever falter away from idolizing him. You know, it's every yeah. time he sees the sheet, the first time he sees the sheet music, yeah, um, while trying to search for Mozart, trying to find him in this sea of people, <laughs> so trying to find brilliance and what does brilliance look like? Um, yeah. There's definitely, and that I think it carries the whole way through. There's all, there is always times he's having these admissions of just how great he was. The mm. fact that, you know, he really did, and there's that underlying guilt there. The fact that he was the reason some of those shows only had five or six half full, yeah, exactly uh, viewings because always he stomping used, him and and gatekeeping him at every step he can. Yeah, because there's that back and because forth. Of, well, because he has such a strong relationship with the King of Austria and. Obviously, the director of music, um, he was able to basically use his power to sort of suppress art, yeah. and suppress creativity, and out of nothing more than, like you said, a, a childish selfishness. <laughs> and, I, and I think what you're seeing as well there is this idea that there's a clear disdain and, and jealousy, but you're right, every, every now and then there's like a spark of brilliance, and it's like the whole reason he is jealous is because he recognizes the brilliance in the yeah. music that Mozart's creating. And I think that comes from, sure, you can argue it's an unreliable narrator and that maybe Mozart's being depicted as more childish and, and sort of uh, egotistical than he may have been. But the whole reason he's in this, you know, insane asylum to begin with is because he tried to kill himself out of guilt. 
So I think that's when that guilt sort of seeps into his story that he's telling the priest of. At the end of the day, this is someone he truly admired. He admired so much that he hated him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except for that, emotions. I mean, that's what what's makes that ending so powerful. Where Mozart's essentially writing his funeral music. Isn't that just the coolest shit ever? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that just the coolest idea ever? From a story. storytelling point of view, it's definitely one oh, of the It's the, so the good. Because... You're sitting there and you're going, wow, this is just, it just keeps going. Like, for yeah. me, it's, you know, and, and we could easily put that as your highlight scene, right? You know, it's, sure. he is writing his own funeral music in the, at the end of the day. You don't know while they're putting it together, but it, obviously Mozart's very poorly at this point. He's become incredibly addicted to, I think, drinking. It's, he's definitely an alcoholic. He's definitely an alcoholic. He's just unwell. I mean, at the time, if you caught a cold, you... <laughs> not faring very well. Um, hey, people died a lot in this, this this age. And what I love as well is, you know, obviously a lot of his motivation in the latter half of the story is that he is quite poor and his wife is saying, you, you know, you need to be taken on jobs that pay you better. And, and I love in the set design, you can see, I didn't really notice it until the second watch that I did. But at the end, when, when his wife and son walk back into the house, like all the, there's markings all over the walls and all the portraits that have gone, all the furniture's been moved, all the, the liveliness of the house is gone because this guy just can't afford this lifestyle. Yeah. So between that and then being, you know, pushed, you know, a rock and a hard place where one's trying to get him to write the requiem and, he, and as much as that's killing him, he says he has to because he can't afford to just do these other jobs which are a bit more fun, like, you know, the magic flute. Mm. That's some r- random actors. Oh, we'll give you money. We promise. We'll pay you when it's all done. Half the house. Half the house. Half the house. Which, uh, again, Salieri, bloody... Just him being him, he takes that money that he actually is given and then pretends like the guy requesting the requiem is the one that paid him this this fortune. So it's... You got that beautiful representation of, like, everything around him and as well as his health and his appearance is just deteriorating and slowly being lost. Um, but it it's almost too late at that point. Mm. Salier has got him around his... his his toe <laughs> it's, in, it's incredible it's such an incredible uh sequence while they're putting that together and mm. um well i say putting it together essentially it's mozart just like salieri simply scribing um and is struggling to keep up mm. um and yeah he's offering obviously points of affirmation but it's coming from that selfish point yeah you know it's squeezing it's squeezing that sponge dry like <laughs> every bit of genius genius and life that's left in him exactly but what i find really interesting right so he dies and then there's the funeral sequence i know we've yep. jumped right to the end but then they cut back to him at the in- insane asylum almost like there wasn't the the life after mozart sequence in the film i don't know oh, okay so sort of what does salieri take the requiem music claim it his own like what what happens next? Maybe that was that interest. Like it sort of just cuts to the insane asylum. Yeah, it? I guess. I guess at that point, it's like once once Mozart has died, once Salieri's, uh, what what's the word? I, I finished his goal, so to speak. I guess you just have to look to real life for yeah. the real. I just mean, fell into obscurity. Yeah. Well, it's like we know who wrote the Requiem. Mm-hmm. And, and even from a film logic standpoint, I, the I, the wife saw him holding it. Yeah, and maybe it's the they actually do make that really good scene. You know, Abrams is saying like his character Salieri is like, well, you know, all of his like it actually made him more popular because mm. then 
that's that whole thing when an artist dies dies young yeah people people look back and go oh what could have been <laughs> look well, at all the amazing things they did while they were alive well that's such a great um thing at the start of the film i mean that's a great scene the one two three you know plant and punch payoff when he's playing the music you know, you don't recognize my work and he doesn't until he plays a mozart piece and of course he recognizes that but there's a great line later where well there's two things that the priest says that really inform the film because he says all men are equal in god's eyes in terms of you know, do you not recognize me um, which is kind of the polar opposite of how Salieri acts, because in his mind, men are not all equal, because he's given a gift from God, and Mozart's been given a gift from God. So regardless of like religious belief, he is actually going against what the priest has claimed to be mm-hmm. God's message. And the other line that he says, in regard to whether he's not he's recognized, when he says, is that why he tried to, you claim to have killed Mozart? And he's like, oh, you heard that. And for me, that's like, he didn't recognize any of the pieces of music that he just played, but that's what he heard was his claim of what he did to Mozart. And that's his legacy is not his music, but what he did to another musician, just another punch to the gut, so to speak. Mm. So there's a lot of little subtle moments in that scene in particular, early in the film. I love it so much. It's a great little way to, and, and like as an audience member, you're probably feeling the same way. It's, I don't recognize those first couple of pieces, but I sure I sure know the Mozart piece. Yeah, everyone's heard that. It really is. It's just a, a masterful film. I mean, six Oscars, right? So, <laughs> what can you? You know, we were talking about. Well, obviously, like everything, everywhere being now the most successful Oscar film of all time. This is still in that. Well, I think top four, top five. Oh, it's definitely up there. Well, it it depends. There's different statistics for most successful. Like, there, there's many films that won more Oscars than Everything Everywhere in terms of the which Oscar categories it won in is where it gets a little muddy, but. Yeah. But this one won, yeah, significant amount. It wasn't. I feel like it was actually more than six. It won. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight, eight. eight. Wow. So best makeup, best sound, best costume design, best art direction, best screenplay, best actor for F. Murray Abram, best director, and best picture. Which is absolutely crazy. But that's that says a lot, doesn't it? Imagine getting best actor and then. Like like I said, it's kind of interesting that it's like, and obviously given all of this stuff that's come out the last week with F. Murray Abram, but mm. I, I, for the life of me, I, when I saw him appear for the first, the first time I saw him was in Mythic Quest, right. and I couldn't really pin any other film that I knew him off. That's off right. In. Yeah. Well, he's in, he's in Moon Knight, actually, which I haven't seen. Grand Budapest Hotel, Scarface, All the oh, Dogs, Inside in Lewin Budapest. Davis. He's been around. He's been around the block. Obviously, he's a little younger in this film. Obviously, he plays an older version of himself. And I think he was in the makeup chair for like four hours or mm. a while to, to, to do the old man makeup, which looks pretty good, to be fair. Yeah. yeah um, I, I think it's not too hard to make someone look old. At least there's that suspension of disbelief. Yeah, with, I suppose. With makeup, I think. Now I like, they just CGI it. <laughs> I like how there's no Oscar for score, but there was no original score in this film. <laughs> To be fair. Actually, that's a that's a good letterbox um, review. You, uh, you could argue that editing this could have got one for editing then. Yeah, it's true. I didn't get one for editing, did it? Oh, it was nominated. Okay. It was definitely. Not. I don't know what it would have been up against that year, but in terms of the editing and in terms of the direction, this is a good time to jump into Myers Myers Foreman and his direction, which I think is pretty subtle, other than the what we talked about with the the diegetic slash non diegetic 
use of music and how like we're hearing music that's inside characters' heads. They're being treated mm-hmm. as if they're diegetic, which I think is just absolutely brilliant. Other than that, it's masterfully invisible direction. Like you're very scarcely mm. ever thinking about what the camera's doing or how the story's being told. It's very yeah. much in the performances. I think there's some really good camera work in, in I think that scene when um, you know, there's a couple of scenes where like Mozart, like he opens the door to the, the figure that was his father or Oh yeah. Or even the sequence, like I said, when they cut to that intermission time where it's intercutting the general up on the stage and yep. then cuts to Salieri's reaction and Mozart's just going nuts on the on the um, composing aspect mm. and you've just had this bit and the music's building and you're just like, oh, yep. I get what's about to happen. Like, this is so cool. But that's what um, I mean by invisible. Like, it yeah. all, like, it, you're completely engulfed in it. It's so masterfully done, but it's not... It almost feels like it's not drawing attention to itself. Sure. I guess it's fair. Yeah. It's kind of like, actually, what, you know, like, films like first thing that just sprang to my head is something like Goodwill Hunting, where it's like sure. a little bit more invisible in its direction. Yeah. Um, because you just get engulfed in the, the story that's unfolding. Um, well, it's wonderful because it's one of those films where I fear what the result would have been if anyone else directed this film. But that, it's like almost like, would someone have come in and like put too much of their own footprint mm. on the story? Yeah. Because this, this feels like such a, just a great authentic three hour tale where it's like it's letting the performances and the production design and and you know editing to an extent that's obviously where we don't know from one film or the other how much you know director slash editor input you know what what was the ratio so to speak how much mm-hmm. did the editor have complete total territory yeah. control and you got the dan the there in the editing suite yeah right. exactly so it's like uh, there are certain films you can kind of tell there mm. are some films where the directors are the editors i mean hey i'm doing one right now myself but yeah, we're right there. What if low key flex, low key flex? <laughs> but we were talking about this on the, at the rap party actually. An anti flex. There's fe- many films with anti flexes, where they would do something that is like dece- seems dece- deceptively simple, but actually isn't. Oh, Which, like um, nonchalantly just. Yeah, moving. like like doing something that's like just incredible, but a general audience wouldn't recognize how difficult that would have been to have constructed. I think Wes Anderson would be like the master of that. Yeah, yeah. Like, it feels like, especially in early Wes Anderson films, like it never felt like they were being like, look at how much effort we're putting into this right. sequence or this shot. Um, Like the Steve Zizou submarine mm. shot where it's, like, going through all the rooms and stuff like that. Yeah. It was... Yeah, I mean, there's, like, some behind-the-scenes stuff of it, but it definitely didn't feel brag-worthy or flex-worthy. It was, like, I just wanted a shot like this, so I did a shot like this. Yeah, exactly. Um, That doesn't draw too much attention to itself, but, like, people in the know who, like, know what it would have taken to construct a shot like that. I mean, there's a lot of... People love wonners because they're wonners, but people don't generally realise why wonners are so impressive, and a lot Mm. of it's to do with... The f- like, where do you put the lights? Yeah. Well, the top, the <laughs> top down sequence in John Wick 4 is like... Oh, okay. But that feels a little like they know that that was really good. There was a little bit of that like, yeah, we know this was good. We're not going to talk about it. But yeah. It's, yeah, it's like a top-down one Oh, interesting. And it's like insane yeah. to look at because the amount of thought that would have had to gone into that. But most people just go, oh, that was a really cool shot. <laughs> yeah, man, that's fair enough. But like bringing it back to Milo's foreman... I mean, look at some of the other films like Man on the Moon and One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, those are films that are obviously very reliant on 
great performances as well. But mm. from memory, I mean, I've I've seen Man on the Moon. It's That's been the Jim and Andy one. Yes, it is. I well, it's Andy been Kaufman. a yeah, it's been a hot minute since I've seen it, and I'm annoyed. I just checked. I did, I never wrote a review on Letterboxd for it. But from memory, that does have a little bit of not Truman Show s, but like a bit of a breaking the fourth wall ness to it. That would have been uh, implied by its directing, so to speak. But going back to Amadeus, like that, it's so it is trying to be so authentic to the time period and the characters within there, and in terms of its direction, I say it's invisible because Milo's, you know, Foreman isn't doing anything that's trying to take attention away from the story. While other things can be very bombastic and and self-aware and yeah, I just, I really, really appreciated it with, with of course the exception again to the, the playing of diegetic music in people's heads. He's definitely someone who needs a director's corner. That's for sure. (laughs) That's true. It's been, we haven't done one yet. I do appreciate Just that. Looking at his uh his spread, it's it's sort of like, I mean, he's definitely defined, I'd say, by Armadeus and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. But there's mm. a couple of other ones, like you said, Man on the Moon, The People vs. Yeah, Larry okay. Flint, um, and some other films that you probably have never heard of before. Oh, very good. But yeah, Jake, do you have like anything that. else to add before we jump into a highlight scene? Let's see. Um, let's see. Looking for my notes, I've kind of talked a lot about it. In terms of the what if scenario of this film, which I don't really know what else I want to to highlight about that. I think some of the films I've I've looked at to more recently, like you've got Last Night in Miami, which is a big what if scenario. Mm-hmm. If here are like real historical people, this was a place they were all at supposedly on this one night. What if they all met and had a conversation? Let's turn that into a play. Um, RRR is a very similar one in terms mm-hmm. of taking real historical figures and giving them superpowers <laughs> and, and yeah. putting them in the sort of the same side of the revolutionary war and uh, seeing what that would have been like. And I think this kind of finds something in the middle where my, I mean, they obviously didn't know each other. Like I said, I was reading earlier that Salieri and Mozart did have more of a friendly rivalry and then Salieri was actually quite close with Mozart's son as well in terms of I think, teaching him. Um, but does this just the idea of of what if they were rivals, mm. like deadly arch rivals? What what do you think the film looks like without that aspect of it? So, like, if you take that rivalry or the way this story is told out of it, so they're just friends the whole yeah, time. Yeah, which which I know the is film becomes astronomically more boring. Yeah, well, it, feel, it feels like a bad question to ask because, like, th- that is that's what the film is. Yeah. <laughs> I think this is the most fantastical way to tell this story, you know, um, because it's not, you know, it's not one of those, like, if we went the original biopic, like the Mozart sure. biopic, um, Salieri would be nothing more than a an ensemble cast member mm. in this, this Mozart biopic. You know, we've come to 2023, we've decided... Hey, Timothy Chalamet, he's being Willy Wonka. Let's make him Mozart next. Let's see what happens. <laughs> I'm t- telling you, it would be the person they would use right now. Uh, it would probably be you're Timothy. Not wrong. You're it not probably wrong. would be. Maybe Barry, they would probably use, you could put Barry Keegan in there. He, he could He could do it. He's weird enough. He's just got to develop the laugh. <laughs> yeah. He's probably got a weird Joker laugh coming, there let's be go. real. Oh, it's happening. Um, but there, um, you know, then Salieri becomes nothing more than a, 
an ensemble cast member, like you said, like maybe someone who would be in a more mentor-esque role, mm. um, looking after the sun, looking after... But the, the film becomes astronomically more boring yeah. in, in that sense, because we understand or at least what Foreman and the original screenplay is trying to get across with um, estranged relationships with fathers. We understand um, Mozart's sickness because it's a uniform, uh, universal concept of, of a tortured artist that is ahead of their time and mm. is a little misunderstood and is being oppressed by the system, which at the time was like oppressing theatists, like listening, like theatre concerts. Right. Um, in more contemporary settings, it's oppressive record labels asking people to churn out more content or yeah. not being happy with the content being turned out or the demanding schedules of managers. You know, we look at in the last year, Elvis, that exploitive relationship there. Yeah. Um, and that film's boring. I'm just, like, <laughs> for, for all of its um, over the top, over, what do you call it? If maximalism. Yeah. Um, fantastic word to describe Baz Luhrmann. But um, it's boring. Yeah. It's a boring linear narrative that kind of tells the same thing. Tortured relationships with parents, yeah. exploitive relationships from mentor figures, and has the same sort of maximalism that this has, but in a different way. Like, it's hyperbolized in the Lerman, and it just looks like like candy. Mm-hmm. And it, Whereas this is, we're going to make everything naturalistic lighting. We're going to heavily rely on pre-existing architecture. The costume design, makeup design, that's going to go through the roof. I mean, the sequences in the Masquerade Ball... Are insane. Some yeah. of the, some of the the costumes and so Obviously, the one that the father has is hauntingly mm. complex and nuanced. Um, so there's a different kind of. Obviously, that era was great with like maximalism and over the topness. Yeah. The rich were stood out like sore thumbs compared to the poor. I mean, there's little commentary. You know, massive throwback to the first episode we had with Jesse New on the show. Oh, yeah. I mean. The King of Austria talks about his cousin, uh, sorry, sister Marie Antoinette <laughs> in France. Oh, the poor people are rising up against Marie. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, and it's interesting how that film sort of does it, you know, with what Coppola does with that, you know? And I think it's such a fantastic film. Well, it's funny because the, the comment about the sister, especially like the young Mozart, um, like, ah, oh, come and marry me. And that being like a little story they laugh over. I mean, that was one of the few examples that they took very directly from apparently what, what came from real life. But yeah, in terms of, like you said, if they had followed that traditional route of like, let, you know, to, in terms of authenticity, yes, the, the characters and their motivations and, and the, the lighting and the architecture and the production design, the costumes are all marvelous. But in terms of, the fabrication, which is of course the rivalry and the story that ensues, like you said, it just—it's the most interesting thing you can do with that idea. And I, I particularly love that the font, the Amadeus font, is very eerily similar to the Assassin's Creed font, <laughs> which does a very similar thing, which is take real life moments and events and swap characters around. And what if this person was this person? And then boom! But I, let's but it I throw out. it to you, Jake. Why is this film so much better than Elvis? Because it's about a mentor on their deathbed telling the exceptional brilliance of someone I, in a time. I think the hook, like like I said, in terms of just like 
fantastic filmmaking all around, but the, I mean, the main thing is the hook. You look at Elvis's hook, and it's not that dissimilar because you still have someone who's not the protagonist or the, the titular character, mm-hmm. in this case, uh, Tom Hanks, who is in a deathbed, being like, oh, I have some regrets, or whatever his bloody accent is he's doing, um, yeah. and then telling that story. And you're right, this is very similar where it's like a Salieri who has regrets telling the story of how he affected this great artist everyone knows. It's a very similar structure, but the hook is so much more interesting in Amadeus because, like I said, it's not revenge on Mozart, it's revenge on God. And it's the fact that all these characters have different motivations than than what you would initially think they are. Mm. And it's just so much it's just so much more gripping and interesting and you always want to know what the next like how you know, it very becomes crystal clear pretty early in the film, especially when he burns the cross of like his denouncement of God and you know, I'm gonna, you know, get revenge on Mozart and yada. At, at that point you know what the story is. It's, like, it's a downward spiral and the question, the hook becomes how does he take Mozart down with him? And for Elvis, it doesn't have the same hook. No, because it's that boring, pretty much that boring linear narrative. He's taking the real life story and trying to wedge something in there. There is, there is the essence, and we talked about it on the Elvis episode. There's an essence of a really good story in there that Lerman Mm. could have told in a unique and fictionalized setting. Yeah, but he chose not to do that. He chose to impose his maximalistic style into this weird sort of pseudo revenge plot, I guess, or pseudo like, exonerative plot, because it's just Tom Hanks' character being like, I didn't kill him. Someone else. He killed himself, basically. Yeah. Um, but then pushing it back into that linear narrative. And it's like, it can work sometimes if there's a unique angle that you want to explore. I think it works really well in Walk the Line, which is pretty linear in its telling, but it's mm. that driving question of the relationship with the father there that works. Um, and the death of... of Cash's brother, but in Elvis, it's it's boring, despite the fact all of that spew that's on the screen. Like, yeah. and it, but it's so much more interesting. You turn this into just a Mozart biopic, which we'll never get now, thankfully, because this film's so good. No one will ever oh, dare go near know. Mozart. You never know. <laughs> no way! <laughs> Hell! See, there's nothing they won't touch or ruin. There's absolutely nothing. Well, the fact of the matter is, this is not the kind of film that gets made anymore these days. You know, this big independent three-hour journey about Mozart and musical rivalries in the 17th century, Those aren't these aren't the kind of films that get fun. And this made bank. This actually did really well in the box office. Mm. I doubt it would today, which I think is a real shame. But uh, to, to go back to your point, I think you can't make a film where Tom Hanks' goal is just to extract as much money as possible and have no hook or deviation of that for two and a half hours straight. Yeah. It's a real driving question. It's like, if you made his character in that, and it's, I don't want to make this out like we're turning this back into an Elvis thing, but I actually do think they're really good for, like, the state of the world, 40 years later. Right. Two plots that kind of follow the same sort of fictionalized biopic structure. Like, we learn a lot about mm. Wolfgang Mozart in this yeah, yeah. film. Way more than you learn about Elvis in his supposedly accurate full-life retelling story. Yeah. So, I think it's worth thinking about. Jake, yep. what was your highlight scene? Um, it has to be... It could have been any number of the scenes in which we see characters get so invested in their music that characters have to literally yell over them to get their attention. It could be any one of those scenes. I'm going to go with one of the earlier ones where 
Mozart's wife goes to Salieri and says, hey, can you just look at this? Can you just look at the pieces? Mm. And he's like furiously ripping through all these pieces and you got his monologue from his future self that's, you know, oh my God, like these are originals, there's no revisions, there's no scribbles. This is like, this is just pure genius that came from, from his head on a page with no like reconsiderations, are they no any good? doubts. Are they, are they any good? Yeah, but it's like, it's just so powerful the way the music punches in with that and the way it it shifts with every page shift like a like a spotify playlist on shuffle <laughs> <laughs> it's just so ingenious and uh, yeah it's, it's a it's another way to make something that wouldn't be as exciting which is just someone looking at pages and making it exciting not and not even just by making it exciting by adding music loud music but adding music that is relevant to the pages that is exactly what the thought process of that character is going through that's literally what is going through that character's brain because that's mm. what they're, they're reading the music sheet and that's the translation in their head so it's just like it seems simple but and we talked about this earlier like an anti um anti-flex so to speak it seems so simple but it is brilliant it's a brilliant way to communicate to the audience what they're thinking but it's not something we see ever really in musical films i mean not in the same sense it now has to like you know we, we've talked about some of the stuff like like carney's done in his films and, yeah um even in like a film like begin again where you've got ruffalo who's seeing nightly for the first time and then is seeing all the musical instruments in the background like it's a creative See, that's wave. that's interesting yeah it's dynamic um and unique um but most of the time yeah it's just people they just if you look at something like like i'll flip it back to something more boring like how do the Queen members come up with some of the greatest anthems of all time? And it's just yep. this, like, very boring... They're in a music studio. What have we did? Dirt, dirt, dirt. <laughs> and you're like... There had to be some way more interesting to show some of these songs. Maybe yeah. not that song, but I think like, even Rocketman has a little bit more dynamic in its nature. Sure. You know, and, you know the way you show how music is conceived and created, how genius is conceived and created, um, doesn't always have to be dynamic and maximalistic. Like you said, it can just be this, a simple man reading the sheets and hearing the music in his head. Yeah. Because he has the gift of hearing it, just not the gift of creating it to the same (laughs) level. Uh, What about you, Z? What's your highlight scene? Uh, Look, I've, I've beaten the drum a couple of times, but it is that, that interim scene where he devises his master plan about yep. using the death of the father. I think the way that the scenes intercut it with, uh, you know, the, this Roman general bursts through the wall as this operatic sequence is unfolding, but the way it um, crescendos and then it moves up, you know, the way it peaks and then crescends, it's just fantastic. It's the fact that, you know, in this time, the elder, the oldest um, Salieri is talking about how it only ran for five shows and he's, he went and saw every single one of them. Like he is in pure awe of this man's um, a way to place emotion into his track, which is something that the film also kind of touches on. That although the like a traditional sort of composed track is intellectual, not emotional, yeah. and a big part of some of the earlier sequences, or even some of the times when Mozart has to pitch ideas about having stories in brothels or having. 20 singers is how much emotion he's putting into his work yeah and they and everyone he's pitching to the king of austria the 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 music director salieri 
they're all devoid of emotion. They're so reserved in mm. their reactions. Well, you certainly seem passionate about it. And at the time, Mozart's like basically on his knees pleading for it's this. The, and the conservative and the libertarian. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and what I think that's trying to show what, what Former's doing, you know, we're talking about this invisible direction, but that that's, that's all him being like, he wants this kind of genius phonetic that is suffering in this world of people that are so reserved and form and mm. don't act on emotion you know why can't he go and compose an um an like uh, a a vaudevillian comedic play because it's amongst the commoners like why can't he do that yeah. you know um because it doesn't pay because it's commercialized it's it's the victorian version of a record label and, and that's an and that's manager. it it's like that is still i mean i was surprised the first time i watched this that yeah how much of that is seeped into this film because you know when we're in today's society we're still used to that argument again what's commercial what's art and what's sellable and you know who are the people in charge of of the art that you know ends up on four thousand screens and um even just like the the spiteful comments made between the musicians themselves is like it's very much an allegory for the filmmaking culture mm-hmm. absolutely I, I totally believe that so yeah it's 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 a tale as old as time and yet ever still uh, relatable. I wish I could compose my death soundtrack. Armadeus is currently out <laughs> in wide release. I don't believe it's on any streaming platforms. No, I have to watch this on my old Blu-ray. Yeah, I have to watch, watch it on a DVD. There you go. The Blu-ray does not have a uh, a break in it. It's just a three-hour video track. No, I kind of liked it. I really liked because I got to go up and get something to eat. I oh, love intermissions. I mean, in Gone with the Wind, I begged for the intermission. <laughs> I mean, t- to be fair, Z, just... Just press the pause button. It's not the same. <laughs> it's kind of nice when they've deliberately placed an intermission where it's like, this is the part where it's okay for you to get up and go. You know what? That's one thing I still love about plays. I went and saw Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, and that's a you did. Ed, honestly, like three hours plus. And boy, when that intermission comes, it's nice because you get to talk about the first half of the film. That is true. Yeah. Second half, we've lost that. Yeah. And to be honest, Hoyt's, you know, our cinemas are at the state where they don't really have that many people coming through. Could we have one or two less screening times and then maybe introduce intermission again if the film was long enough? Obviously, if it's a 100-minute film, no. But the film's yeah, three I hours. I, yeah, I don't think we're going to see that again. It's just they, they need their session times, Zeke. They need their session times. Speaking of session times, Jake, what's new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? It's really not a lot. If you go to Disney+, Plus, you've got David Lowey's new film, a live-action Peter Pan Wendy adaptation, which I... It's interesting because first off, it's David Lowey, so I was like, okay, that it's going to be interesting, surely. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was like, he just came off fresh off the Green Knight, so do I, do I care? Though, I, Peter, I, I don't Peter. know. Do you? <laughs> I'm I'm mildly curious because of who's directing it, but is does this fall underneath the echelons of like live action Disney remakes that are just all crap, or is this more like Pinocchio? It's like we've seen plenty of different mm. Peter Pan and Wendy live adaptations. You know the Robert. Robert Williams one and the other. so I don't know I don't know where this lands in that regard you've also got a film called Clock which follows a woman's desperate attempt to fix her broken biological clock so a horror film about pregnancy okay. potentially very interesting now over with those session times in cinemas you've got pol- I, I think it's Polite Society I wrote Police Society for some reason I, I definitely don't, <laughs> definitely don't think it's Police Society she's a martial artist in training attempt to save her sister in the most ambitious of all wedding heists in the name of independent and sisterhood 
There you go. It's like it's a little like tag. Yeah. You gotta stop the wedding scene. And tag tag is <laughs> uncomfortable with that. Oh goodness. What a what a fun time. Eighty for Brady. She's Jane Fonda, uh, Rita Marino, Sally Field, and Lily Tomlin on a trip to meet their hero Tom Brady. And they're all eighty. Oh, yeah, I think they're all eighty. Yeah. Like wow, I guess Sally Field is entering her eighties. That's wild. I think she was born like forty six or something. Yeah, that's wow. Fair enough. Maybe now she could play Aunt May. Maybe now. Yeah. <laughs> The Secret Kingdom sees anxious Peter and his nine-year-old sister fall through the floor of an old family mansion and takes him to an underground chamber with a civilization of creatures where their presence was foretold. A little Narnia, maybe? Mm. A bit of that in there? And finally, My Neighbor Adolf is based on a true story and sees a reclusive Holocaust survivor in the 1960s Brazil form a friendship with his next-door neighbor who he believes to be Adolf Hitler. I don't know if this is a fun tale of acceptance, Zeke, or a horror film. Yeah, is it Jojo Rabbit? He really or is, it, <laughs> or is it The Pianist? I'm waiting for like the last, like entering into the third act when it's all like, oh, maybe he is just a normal guy. And then he turns around and Hitler's got a chainsaw and he's like, surprise. Mm. I remember who you thought I was this whole time. <laughs> I don't know. But you have to go and see it to find out. There you go. There you go. That's what's coming to cinemas near you. Well, we aren't catching any of those next week on the show, at least not for our film of the week. Jake, we are moving into our 1970s for our countdown through the decade retrospective. Mm, Two films went up. Only one walks out. Jake, what are we watching next (laughs) week? (laughs) They left the ring. So uh, one of the options next week, which is not going to go through, Clockwork Orange, which I think is a brilliant film, but I think we talked about before the show, it might be a bit too... Hectic. Hectic too vile for some people perhaps that's fair enough i think that's fair enough but we're doing another film next week one i haven't seen before so i'm actually very excited for that next week on the show zeke we're watching steven spielberg's close encounters of the third kind indianapolis aries 31 has traffic two o'clock slightly above can you say aircraft type uh negative center uh, no distinct outline say the truth the target is rather brilliant wait a second he's heading right for my windshield Traffic is approaching head on. Alter right and really moving. And right by us right now. That was really close. 31, do you wish to file a report of any kind of it? I wouldn't know what kind of report to file, Senator. This is nuts. What do you want? I just want to know that it's it's really happening. After an encounter with UFOs, a line worker feels undeniably drawn to an isolated area in the wilderness where something spectacular is about to happen. Gosh darn, it's another Spielberg film. Tis, we've done a few of those the now. Fabelman. The Fabelman. The Fabelman. So uh, this one, the poll 18 to 11. So yeah, a little bit of a... Took the lead in the end there. 
but yeah, I, I don't excited. think it was ever in danger of, of dropping the ball. I was a little surprised. I thought, but okay. like we said, we we did discuss for the show, Clockwork Orange is a very intense film. So, um, happy we'll to do, do it one day. One day. Yeah, I'm happy to be doing close uh, close encounters. I watched this last year, yep. first time, so it'll be nice to revisit it and have a conversation about it. Ooh. I'm excited to see it. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So what, what's the what's the second kind, Zeke? There's humans. I don't know. Dogs. Yeah. Humans, dogs, and aliens. Dogs. Yeah. Dogs. Aliens. Humans. Maybe the fourth kind. Maybe we're the third kind. The fourth kind is is Collingwood supporters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs>